Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why do certain people have ghostly experiences? Are ghosts what most people think they are? What is spontaneous apparitional trace theory? Hello and welcome to uh, Behind the Paranormal, our 751st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben. And those haunting questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, Paul. And so, today we bring you a very old, uh, but very misunderstood subject. So you can call us today. The numbers are 401-766-1240. That's uh, anywhere in the multiverse. Or you can email us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Or don't forget about our Facebook page as well, because uh, you can also get in contact with us that way too. And uh, today, coasting with us is our uh, resident behavioral uh, scientist and casting producer, uh, Lori Greer, coming to us uh, from New York. Good morning, Paul, Ben, and Brandon, and a warm welcome to all of our listeners, both returning and new listeners, and to our exciting guest, Brandon, who approaches this field with new scientific rigor. Aha! You hear that, Brandon? That's uh, that's very good. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So, uh, coming to us via Skype today, uh, Laurie is coming to us via Skype, too, uh, is Brandon Masulo. Uh, an Ohio-based clinical therapist and parapsychologist. Brandon has graduate degrees in clinical counseling from the University of Toledo and in psychological research methods from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. His research in Edinburgh is centered on neurobiological correlates of ghostly encounters. Every school child knows about that. Uh, Brandon has been fascinated by the paranormal for 20 years and has, had a, and has been a participant and featured speaker in numerous paranormal Fair forums and events, including the Parapsychological Association's 60th anniversary celebration. That's a very prestigious organization. He is the author of The Ghost Studies, New Perspectives on the Origins of Paranormal Experiences from New Page Books. His website, hauntedtheories.com. So, Brandon Masolo, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Very good. And we're trying out our new uh, connection technology here today. You sound absolutely terrific. Awesome, good. Okay, take it away, Ben, uh, and then we'll give it over to Lori. Alrighty, so in your book you talk about everything from, you know, uh, morphogenic fields to bio and, you know, energetics. So can you sum up as briefly as possible, <laughs> uh, in 25 words or less, how have you okay. taken the ghost theory beyond the 19th century spiritualist elements? Um, well, I've, I've combined a little bit of, of some of the old, old stuff, like... Um, uh, phantasms of the living in the 1800s and telepathy uh, and sort of how telepathy uh, goes with ghostly encounters and I've mixed it with a lot of the new research that's out there and the new research that's out there is really on entanglement, non-locality, collective consciousness, this idea that um, you know our consciousness may live on after we die um, and what happens to our consciousness like with near-death experiences, it sometimes floats above us, and, and to, to be pretty blunt there. But what happens to our consciousness? How is our consciousness, what role does that play in ghostly encounters? And then how does the environment play a part in consciousness, telepathy, ghostly encounters? And then I threw another thing in there because of my background in psychology, which is uh, emotions. And how do emotions affect us internally, uh, bioenergetic-wise? And then how does that um, sort of correlate with ghostly encounters. So in the book, I go over 
what I I have like an equation that goes over sort of the specifics about what may happen during these ghostly encounters, and I include all that environmental, psychological. Uh, these are all uh, in the atmosphere and bioenergetics. These are all sort of important components when it comes to uh, making up a ghostly encounter. Okay, all right, Lori. Um Take it away with the questions. You're in the same field as Brandon, and uh, let's see what you can do. Yes, I have many, many, many questions. And, Brandon, I just started reading uh, reading your book, The Ghost Stories, and hopefully it will be out um, in audio sometimes because I do most of my listening when I'm in the car. But, it uh, is. It's out on book, audio. Oh, it is? Oh, great. Yeah, it's on Audible. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, um, in your book, uh, you talk about your uh, new perspective on ghosts and more specifically the two theories, the ghostly ingredients theory and the um, spontaneous apparition trace theory. And I'd love to hear about those. But before that, um, I wanted to know what motivated you to get interested in studying um, abroad and why are there not more universities that offer paranormal psychology or parapsychology as a course of study? I know there's coursework in several universities in, you know, in the U.S., but... Um, probably nothing similar to what you um, where you studied in Scotland, and then of course because you did study in Scotland, I have to ask you if you actually went looking for the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start with the last one. I did. I went up to the Loch Ness twice. Um, I just took a tour on a boat, um, but it's really fascinating to go up there and just experience the whole thing. Uh, I did not find anything except uh, beautiful landscapes. But I did go up there twice when I was in Scotland. Um, so to the answer to the other questions, uh, what got me interested in it? I, when I was in high school, I picked up a book on parapsychology, and I just started reading. And then I went to the library, got another book, and another book, and then another book. And then I actually went into uh, college for psychology. And then while I was studying my undergrad in psychology, um, I still remember this day pretty vividly. I asked one of the professors, I said, I'm really interested in parapsychology, um, do you have any suggestions on what I should do? And, the, and he was like, well, I think you should um, not do that and get a job that pays you. <laughs> um, I'll second well, that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He was honest with me, which I appreciated. Uh, and then I ended up getting a degree and, and, you know, more the clinical aspect of things and getting a job doing, you know, face-to-face counseling. And then I went overseas and started – that's when I studied at the University of Edinburgh. That's when I started studying parapsychology. And then I came back here. And I'm, I'm back in the clinical work because, you know, I don't get reimbursed really for any parapsychological stuff that I do. But, um, you know, when you study parapsychology, at least overseas in the University of Edinburgh, it's not like you're in a classroom and you're studying about ghosts and things like that. There was probably maybe two or three courses that I took that were on parapsychology, and I wrote papers on parapsychology, that type of thing. But a lot of the a lot of the coursework and a lot of the education is more about um, how to develop a, an experiment, you know, hypotheses, um, you know, setting up uh, conclusions, results, procedures, those types of things, statistics. Uh, so they really stress that pretty pretty highly in in parapsychological studies, you know, because when it comes, when you're trying to document something that's paranormal or that might be outside of mainstream science, you might got to make sure that things are tight when it comes to your statistics and your your hypotheses and your results, and that's really what they stress. 
so it's not as cool as you know sitting in a in a dark room learning about the occult or anything like that. That doesn't really happen in parapsychology or studies. It's more learning, uh, like I said, the boring stuff, the statistics, uh, and, and that's. You know, I get the question that you asked a lot, why doesn't the states do this? And I don't really know the answer. It comes down to really two things, funding, grants. That's usually what propels a lot of the research in, in, in academia. So if there's no grants and there's no funding, there's no one going to be doing the research. Now, that's that's boiled down version of it. I guess my, my follow-up question to, to this, and this isn't where I was going to go at this point, but how can we get academia in this country um, to take our field, to take the field of paranormal um, psychology and to take paranormal experiences more seriously? And I think that, you know, one of the ways, and I've talked with Paul and, and Shane and Ben about this, is that we have to get a more objective data collection system and, and measurement. And I know um, you talked a little bit about um, having investigations utilize three witnesses for every time there's a... Um, an observation in addition to, I think you mentioned a questionnaire that would hopefully um, get more reliable responses and measures. And, I mean, I think that's, that would be terrific if we could get our um, academia in this country to take this more seriously. Yeah. You know, on the website I have three ways to advance paranormal um, studies. Uh, and this is for, for, for amateurs, I guess, if you want to say it like that, but people who are out there investigating on the weekends so how do we get academia to take us seriously? Well, you got to have some sort of standard protocol. Um, you got to have like a questionnaire. Uh, you got to sort of pull from that questionnaire certain data points that could be analyzed statistically. Um, so if ever, if there's, I don't know how many paranormal investigating teams there are out there. Let's say there's 300 and 300 paranormal investigation teams in Ohio, where I'm from. If, if every time they go out, they give the same questionnaires, get the same results, and do statistics on it, you might have 300. Your sample size might be 300. So if you multiply that by, I don't know how many paranormal investigation teams there are in the world, but you might come up with maybe 100,000 questionnaires over a course of a year. And that's going to really, and, and you're going to have statistics on it, you're going to have uh, consistent data, and academia will probably start to take things seriously at that point. Sample sizes for a lot of psychological research is small. Um, you know, sometimes it's 30 to 40 participants. My research in Edinburgh had 250 participants, which is really high. But if you have data on 100,000 people, someone in academia is going to want to get their hands on that. And that's really your way in. And I go over other ways to include statistics and ghost hunting, uh, gather, uh, data gathering, just different ways to do it other than just videos and EVPs and things like that. Okay. Well, uh, I, th I think, is, yeah, I, w I always I always like to consider um, a, 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 diff a different approach. You know, I have a lot of friends who work in the tech fields and the sciences. One of my buddies is getting his PhD at Cornell right now, and any time I mention anything about ghosts or anything about God, he instantly just says, Higgs boson, that's it, we're done, we're not talking about any of this. <laughs> like, I, I was listening to a very interesting podcast recently, I can't remember which one, um, I was driving somewhere and... This guy who was talking, I think it was like an analytical philosophy thing, was talking about how we live in, everyone says we live in an age of science. That, you know, everything's based around science now, and we have an age of technology, all sorts of glorious things. And he said, I don't think that's true. I think we live in an age of idealism. That rather than using science to back up arguments, people use ideals. Hmm. That, you know, 
instead of you know using facts and statistics and stuff, it's more of people entrench themselves in a certain way of thinking that they'll just they'll never get out of. Perfect example is the archaeology field. There's all sorts of archaeological evidence that humans, long, long ago, when we were becoming you know an agricultural sort of uh, entity, that we had all these amazing tools, like you know the Baghdad battery and stuff like that. But you know a lot of a lot of mainstream archaeologists are like, nope, nope. That's no. They were all idiots. There's no way they could do any of this. It's just, just they, they just lucked out. And you know, it's it's the same kind of thing. I think in in most of the sciences that there's a that you know there's a lot of ideals that people are entrenched behind. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, despite all the data, and despite all the statistics, you know, for the believer, no evidence is enough, and for the skeptic, you know, there is that there's you know, there's just not nothing matters at all. So I mean, you know, if if you're trying to prove to a materialistic science that, you know, this this you know the paranormal is a real thing, what would be your first step? Oh gosh, that's a t- that's a big step to take. But I, you summed everything up perfect, Ben. I, I don't. I, that's amazing the way you did that. And I think that, uh, you know, where do you go with this? I, I think the hardest part is getting the the people who are entrenched in in not believing in paranormal and the, the fact that it could happen is to get them to actually read the research. That's really the hardest part. And that's really, you know, if you sit down and read the um, the journal articles, the experiments, the studies on, we'll stick with telepathy. Um, you know, you start to see that these meta-analysis, these, you know, looking at it from gathering all the telepathy studies and getting a huge meta-analysis on all of them together, you do see significant results. And a lot of these other things, a lot of these other research out there, there's very, very significant results. Um, the problem is they have these ideas or idealism, as, as you, you, you mentioned, and they're really stuck with it, and they can't get away from that. Uh, Dean Radin has a new book out called, I, I think it's... Um, the real magic or something like that and and in the book it's really a concise way to look at um, all the research out there and some of the obstacles uh, as far as getting this across the mainstream science the good news is I think in the last five years consciousness has become quite a bit of a topic um, as far as the mind-body you know dilemma where is consciousness or self-awareness coming from is that internal I mean are we um, like robots or is this something consciousness, something outside of that? And I think that you see more physicists, you see more academics, maybe going, well, maybe there is a little bit more to the self-awareness and consciousness, other than we're just robots made up of circuitry. Maybe there's, maybe consciousness comes from the outside. You know, all these different ideas. So the biggest step, it, it, you know, it's I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. It's like trying to convince a Steelers fan to be a Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> it, you, you know, you can't do it. Or a New England it. Patriots fan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I could sit down in a room and you could lock the door for four days. I'm not going to convince these Steelers fans to root for the Browns. Um, Fair enough. You know, but with, with, if they start reading some books, at least in academia, if they start reading some journal articles, then they might start to say, well, there is a possibility to it. And that's when you open the door. I was an ardent skeptic for years. So, I mean, I've moved over. Um, but it has to go both ways. These believe, the believers always have, have to read some research articles too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it goes both ways with it. It does. Uh, Lori, can I work a question in here? Um, sure. Okay. The, are we, is, is science really, and I'm not a scientist, you two are, 
is science really up to actually researching this in any honest way? In other words, if I take a, uh, usually I use the analogy of a, of a basketball, but in out of respect for the recent World Cup, I'll say soccer ball or football. And we try to measure its its uh, circumference with a straight ruler. You you really can't do it, at least not with any accuracy. Is it possible that what we're actually when we try to make the paranormal, which some scientists have told me is outside of science, doesn't mean it's not legitimate. What when we try to make it fit the scientific the narrow scientific paradigm we generally have, not to be unfair, are we not trying to? use a straight ruler to measure the circumference of a soccer ball. Yeah, and that's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head there. You know, when you do the scientific process, uh, the scientific method, it, you know, it, it relies on a lot of things. You know, the whatever you're studying has to be reliable, has to be consistent, um, and, and it has to sort of be repeatable at will. Uh, that's everything that, you know, when it comes to the paranormal, these experiences aren't repeatable at will. They're not consistent. So it's tough to put it in a laboratory and actually get results that are beneficial in a way. But science has done it. There's a lot of people out there, you know, who are developing these experiments that show that telepathy or precognition or remote viewing exist. Um, and they're doing it maybe with sort of linear or traditional methods. Sometimes they're nonlinear or a little outside the box, but they're getting significant results with it. Um, now, the, the younger scientists coming up, academia, are, are less entrenched in these idealisms and materialistic sort of thinking. And I think that, I, you know, I'm optimistic that it's going to shift and there's going to be a lot more more progress in the field but you know i get what you're saying how do you study the paranormal when and when you try to fit it into a box in the scientific method it becomes a lot more challenging but there are people who have found out ways to do that now they're not groundbreaking studies uh they're sort of small things small significant things but it uh, if you have 700 small small significant things to me that equals one big thing um so it, I think that answered your question. I don't know if yeah, you or not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, go ahead, Laura. And I think just kind of tagging along to that, that it's because it's so difficult to get evidence. And, um, you know, and I know I've talked to, to, to you guys about, well, you know, if people are sighting Bigfoot in the woods, let's just put up video cameras. And, you know, if people are reporting events, you know, there has to be some kind of recording equipment that can um, document these events as well. But I think that some people still want to believe that there's a, a paranormal experience, that they might put themselves in these environments or these, these settings, like such as, a, um, you know, if you know a building is, is haunted or if you've heard a building is haunted, you're going to be in that building and you're going to, to hear things and you're going to possibly see things that maybe um, don't have any um, anything at all to do with uh, a paranormal experience. I know the, the building that I work in, in Connecticut, it's said to be haunted. There was, I guess, there used to be a nursing nursing home, and many people have died in a lot of the rooms that we now have as offices. And some people report that when they're in the building alone, they hear things. They, um, you know, they see things. Lights going on at at times when no one's in the building. Um, so I think sometimes that becomes the evidence, and then also. Um, Another question that I had that kind of 
has to do with this is why is it that some people do report paranormal experiences and others do not? And I know you state in your book that there have to be certain psychological processes such as, um, you know, emotional distress, that those kinds of things must be present in order for a paranormal or um, apparitional experience to occur. So I know that's a whole lot of stuff that I just spit out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll stop yeah I... I, I think what you talked about first was this idea of suggestibility. So um, if if I go to a haunted house and I amp myself up that I'm in the most haunted room and the most haunted house in America, um, I, I might set myself up for having an experience. I m- it might be more prone to having one as far as, you know, maybe a sound, maybe I relate it to a ghost or, you know, those types of things. So suggestibility is a big part. Um, I and it could rule out some things. I, I like to look at cases that are spontaneous. In other words, like crisis apparitions, uh, where you know I'm laying in bed on some on just a random Wednesday night, and uh, all of a sudden the ghost of my aunt appears to me and says, um, "I just showed up to say goodbye." And then I hear the next day I get a call saying she passed away about the time that I had this apparition. To me, I like those because they're they occur one time. People aren't expecting them, and you know there, there's there's a lot that can you could learn from apparitional experiences like that. Uh, these people aren't ghost hunters; they're not seeking out this stuff, uh, but they do have these apparitional experiences. To me, those are the ones that I think we can learn the most from. Um, and, and to 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 go into the other part of your question, uh, are there people who are actually more prone to having paranormal experiences? And and I think when I was over in Edinburgh, that was actually one of the the proponent one of the things I studied, and what I studied a lot was this idea of environmental sensitivity. Um, so the, so the the dictionary actually defines sensitivity as capable of registering very slight differences or changes, and you know as humans we're all affected by the environment and react to it in different ways. But there actually is past research that suggests that the environment affects certain people more than others. Um, so certain people are more overwhelmed with the environment, which causes reactions, illnesses, um, and conditions that, that the general population doesn't even really, it doesn't affect them. So, for instance, what if everyday noises cause physical pain? What if typical exposure to light caused severe headaches? Touch. What if being touched caused severe pain? What if everyday fragrances caused, like cleaning fluid or cleaning fragrances, caused physical symptoms? What if everyday electricity left you drained and caused you physically ill? So, what we have is environmental stimuli that, when we come in contact with it, um, those who are extremely sensitive to this are, are actually overwhelmed, and it causes physical distress. And this susceptibility leads to allergies, migraines, asthma, those types of things. So this is not psychic sensitivity that I'm talking about. That's more like um, um, psychic uh, claiming to sense or communicate with the deceased, like Chip Coffee and Jim Edwards. I'm talking about actually being more sensitive to the environment. So the idea that we experience the physical environment differently, it's not new. Um, there, but recent research suggests that these differences have this biological origin. So women, for example, have greater sensitivity across all senses. So there's scientific proof that women are, are better than men. Um, we also have individual repertoire of smell sensors and color perception and those types of things. So w- w- what I'm basically saying is that we all have 
experience the physical world differently and there's different differing levels of sensitivity to things in the environment there are, and there's certain people who have a greater sense of susceptibility to sort of the factors the uh, environmental factors Brandon I'll have to interrupt you for our break uh, <clears throat> you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno uh, on WON 1240 AM and 993 FM and we have our wonderful guest today, Brandon Masulo, and our uh, co-host uh, today, Lori Greer. They're in the same field. They're having a great discussion. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Hi, Parrot Head. This is Joe Callahan, your Mater D in the Tiki Bar every Tuesday night from 6 to 7. One full hour of nothing but Jimmy Buffett music. The Tiki Bar is brought to you by attorney Bob Lauder and by the Carew Investment Group. All right, welcome back already. It's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Van Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Uh, we have today a fascinating conversation going on between Brandon Masulo, uh, author and researcher and uh, clinical uh, therapist. Also, uh, Lori Greer, our uh, casting producer and uh, co- very popular co-host, uh, who is in a similar field. So uh, I'll let you two... Get started again, but before we do that, Brandon, uh, let's take the uh, the um, opportunity here to talk about your book, uh, where people can get it, and uh, I'm, I'm holding it up, uh, I don't know if people can see it, to the uh, those who are receiving the video feed, uh, Ben's going to take it close to the camera, so go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> uh, the book is called The Ghost Studies, New Perspectives on the Origin of Paranormal Experiences. Uh, you can get it pretty much anywhere, if you like to go into stores, Barnes & Noble sells it. Um, it is available on Amazon, uh, and you can get it at audible.com as well. The audiobook, and, you know, um, if you like listening to it on the, on the road or while you're working out. But the, the book itself is, it's a mixture of, um, case, case studies. I, I think I collected, uh, over a hundred case studies of apparitional experiences and uh, a little bit about the most up-to-date research on apparitional and paranormal experiences. And then I have uh, a couple new theories that I I have in the book as well. So not only do you get uh, a ghostly encounter, you you get a little bit about what might happen. So there's a lot of amazing books that go over great ghost stories and great encounters um, and great investigations. This book goes a little bit further. It'll show you, it'll talk about the research that goes into this, and then it'll talk a little bit about my thoughts about what might be happening. So it's really um, a three-pronged approach, and I think it's entertaining and enlightening as well, but I'm a little biased. Outstanding. No, we got a lot of great reaction before the show that you were going to be on. People love the book. Lori, mm-hmm. it's all yours. Uh, okay, I'm just going to mention how um, on our last, the last show that I was in, in studio, Shane and I got into a little conversation about how the principles of behavior such as reinforcement and, and ignoring, how those might affect what's going on in an environment. And if you reinforce something that's going on, um, you know, in a paranormal activity, you know, is it likely that those things are going to, to increase? And then as I was reading your, your book, um, it mentioned um, that there was a, a psychoanalytic therapist in the 30s. I forgot his name, but he also believed that... Um, the presence of an observer also changes the emotional atmosphere of a particular house and that the presence of an observer also changes um, all the psychological aspects um, that are going on. And I kind of found, find that very interesting and really want to look more into how some of our behavioral um, 
uh, approaches affect, maybe affect what might be going on in a uh, paranormal experience. I don't know if you can speak to that. And then also maybe how you use the, your coursework from, um, from Scotland in your practice uh, right now. Uh, I think uh, the the psychoanalyst you're talking about is Nandor Fodor, F-O-D-O-R. Yeah, his book is called Haunted Minds, and it's it's a really amazing book. Um, and and he in the book he goes over he takes a very psychological approach to hauntings. Um, and in there he talks about you know who we are uh, even as people. It changes when we're around other people. So the dynamic between me and my wife changes when we have company over, <laughs> right? <laughs> my dynamic changes when company's over. So the actual presence of other people um, changes the, the the dynamic psychologically. And his argument was that this is also true when it comes to hauntings. So while they could occur with just an individual when you bring in people to research it, it changes the dynamic, which then again changes the phenomena. So his take is, and he goes through a lot of case studies, and he actually works with the people through like almost like clinical psychology to sort of help with these apparitional experiences. Uh, I don't know if I believe everything he says in there, but it's actually a great starting point for anyone who's interested in sort of learning a little bit more about psychology and paranormal experiences. It's one of the most early books that sort of tackles that. Um, so it, it, in and of itself, uh, he's, a, he's a pretty prominent person, at least in my research, and uh, sort of the backbone or the baseline for some of the, 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 the rest of the stuff that came through the book. Um, it, what, and I forgot the other question there. I'm sorry, Lori, the, the last one. Uh, oh, I, I had asked um, if, you, if you use any of what you, you know, besides what you mentioned before, um, you know, the scientific procedures and so on, in your course, in your work now with, um, you know, in the, the field of clinical psychology, how you, yep. you know, how you use, maybe use some of that with your, with your patients, clients, I don't know what you, what you call them. Yeah, and, and actually, over the last, uh, I would say about five to ten years, there's eh, probably more five five years, but there's a thing called clinical parapsychology that's starting to erupt a little bit. And that's sort of um, um, how do you clinically manage people who are having a lot of these uh, paranormal phenomenon happen to them. Because this could be a pretty overwhelming experience, you know, uh, having an apparitional experience or maybe sort of experiencing some sort of telepathy or maybe some remote viewing or maybe some precognition, like, you know, I had a dream about an accident that occurred down the street and it actually happened. You know, how do I, that's an, an emotional, that could be a huge emotional thing for somebody. Uh, so there's a lot of research going into it at this point and there's a lot of almost one, you, you I want to say methods about how to manage these types of things. Uh, how do you do it in a, in a clinical practice? It, it's, it's tough to really communicate verbally how that happens. Uh, every every person has an individual experience, and every emotion related to that is individual to that person. I think the most important thing you want to do is to make person feel comfortable in any sort of uh, clinical atmosphere, comfortable to talk about their emotions, what happened, rather than feel like I'm going to view them as um, hallucinating, delusional, insane, whatever else perspective they have. Because, listen, I think... I don't know what the actual, the, the most recent numbers are, but I think 40% of Americans believe in paranormal phenomenon. So, you know, it's not, not that abnormal for these experiences to actually happen. 
but you know when people go in and talk to a, a therapist they might feel like it's an abnormal thing so just normalizing the behaviors is really the first part of it is there um, or have you found a correlation maybe between individuals who are diagnosed with psychiatric con- conditions and you know since they may have more um, more stress in their in their life they may have more emotional issues with um, individuals who um, witness or experience, um, um, you know, um, who, who experience paranormal um, events. Uh, no, it, it's tough because listen, we all experience depression, we all experience anxiety, we all have stress. Uh, it just depends on where it's at on the continuum. Um, obviously, if there's a person who's more prone to having depression, uh, I think that that can make them more prone to having maybe paranormal experiences or uh, more emotional distress might be having more prone to that. There's some correlations in the research about past trauma being related to an increase in paranormal phenomenon. Um, so there is some research to say that that exists. I haven't found that too much personally because, uh, listen, I, you know, I... You know whether I'm um, working with someone who has depression or anxiety or bipolar or, or whatever diagnosis. Um, you know I, I will hear paranormal phenomenon, but just out in in the world talking to my family and friends and and everyone else, you know I, I hear just as many reports of personal experiences. So I don't necessarily think one. I don't think it necessarily causes or makes one more prone to it. Um, that's just my personal experience. I always question um, why some individuals um, suffer from, you know, psychiatric symptoms more than more than others. Like how some individuals who may have gone through lots of tra- traumatic events, um, you know, don't need medication, don't need therapy. They're able to get on, get on with their life. The same thing with, you know, individuals who, you know, so many people are diagnosed now with an- anxiety disorders or, or or depression, and you know. We have depressing events that we experience in our life all the time, but some of mm-hmm. us can kind of just, you know, realize that and get on with it and don't need any other kind of intervention. So I kind of, that was my, um, why well, I was trying to um, maybe establish a relationship between um, between those two things. So that was the reason for yeah, for my question. Um, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to need to, to sign off. I'm going to be listening, but I'm going to be driving. So um, <laughs> I, have to, I have to do something at yeah, work. D- don't work do this while driving. I'm going to be listening, but um, I don't know if you're if you have time if you're able to just touch on those the two theories, the ghostly ingredient therapy and the theory and the spontaneous aberration trace theory. Yeah, sure. Or if it might that. be too lengthy to um, to discuss, but um, if you can, that would be great. So I'm going yeah, to I'll put just... you guys on speakerphone, and um, I'll be listening the rest of the show. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Lori. <laughs> okay. hey. Thank you, Lori. Brandon, it's in your court. Yeah. The soccer I'll, I'll ball just... that we can't measure with the straight ruler. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I'll just briefly go over them. So I have two theories in the book. Uh, one of them is called ghostly ingredients theory, and the other one is called spontaneous apparitional trace theory. Um, so the first theory is it basically deals with specifically with crisis apparitions, uh, and we talked about these a little bit before. But my view is that 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 hauntings, apparitions, and ghosts are a combination of psychological processes, this human bioenergetic process, which is the our our internal bio energy or electricity 
and the external environmental processes. And I believe that for a ghostly experience to occur, all these factors need to be present. Individually, these processes are important, but um, and there's been research sort of in areas with respect to paranormal experiences in all those areas, but I think it's a combination of things. And I, and I, and I stress that throughout the book that paranormal experiences, specifically ghostly encounters, are pretty complex experiences, and it's not, I don't think it can just be related to just one thing, like it's just magnetic fields, or it's just this, or it's just that. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, so the spontaneous apparitional trace theory is is basically what I use to describe residu- residual hauntings. Uh, and these are the ones most commonly found on TV. Uh, and the theory is in every haunted location, there was an individual who sent a telepathic distress call to someone who they were sort of emotionally linked with. And that's what's actually stuck in the location. And this is what sensitives and ghost hunters are sort of encountering. I, I think this hypothesis can account for a great deal of recurrent apparitions and hauntings. And um, uh, it, it's kind of similar to the stone tape theory and place theory and imprint theory. However, my theory differs and that it doesn't have to coincide with the location or the origin of a tragic event or a telepathic distress message, but it could be the destination or the end point. So you have a person who is in um, in distress. They send the sort of like almost a telepathic distress signal to somebody else. It's that signal that people are picking up on. The ghostly ingredients theory sort of goes over uh, crisis apparitions like the ant showing up in your room, what are the things that happen behind that? And I have an equation like I talked about before, psychological aspects plus bioenergetic aspects plus the environment equals this um, experience. And I just go over all the research that backs up why I think this way and how it happens. Um, it's it, the, the book itself goes over everything. It gives case examples. It, it gives the research behind what I'm thinking. Um, and whenever I mention the word telepathy, some people cringe. But telepathy and ghostly encounters are often, and I stress this, often similar. And I mm. point that out quite a bit in the book. Uh, so, um, and I, I also stress a lot in the book that I'm never going to discount that spirits and ghosts, um, you know, don't exist or anything like that. When we have all the theories out there for what causes ghostly encounters, there's not one that that's, that explains everything. You know, of all the ghostly encounters, maybe 15% are fraud, maybe 30% are related to spirits or actual ghosts and then there's the rest of this that that's where i'm sort of in that ballpark explaining what happens there okay uh yeah it's all very great stuff i respect it a great deal now one of the issues uh that i just want to get your thoughts on this brandon uh and maybe ben too certainly uh one of our uh, other popular co-hosts uh guest co-hosts is uh, shane searway whom you might not be familiar with but he's very perceptive has been in this field for a long, long time. And he says, and we tend to agree with him, that it's not places that are quote-unquote haunted, it's people. And you are one of the few people who seems to to get it when it comes to the connection between the percipient and the phenomena, okay, or the phenomenon, whatever is going on. Um, do you Would you agree, uh, as far as it goes with Shane's uh, contention, that uh, it's it's not people, it's not places that are haunted, but people? I think I think everyone can have a paranormal experience, right? Um, but there are people who are more prone to it. Uh, so if you have 100 people walk into, let's say we 
have a haunted room with a ghost that's sitting in there. If we have 100 people walk into there, maybe only 20 people actually have a paranormal experience. So why are those 20 people having it? Uh, and why are the other 80 not having it? Um, that's where a lot of my research went into. And I think that I, I would agree with you that people play a huge role in paranormal experiences. And the only constant throughout history when it comes to paranormal experiences is that a person has to be present to see a ghost, um, feel a presence, um, witness uh, poltergeist activity. There always has to be somebody present to do that. So people are always present when it comes to these paranormal experiences and ghostly encounters. So I would agree. I think that things are more people-oriented than they are place-oriented. Um, I, I think that's a pretty... You know, our locations haunted. I think the people interacting with the environment sort of bring out these experiences. Um, so I, I do think people are the primary um, cause, trigger, catalyst to a ghostly encounter or paranormal experience. Okay. Uh, we have a question uh, from Lori from Beyond the Airwaves here. Um, uh, can you give an example of what's in your questionnaire? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, gosh, I don't have it in front of me, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay, well. I have a questionnaire. I have a couple questionnaires, but one of the questionnaires I have is, um, you know, sort of how to, de- how to determine whether someone is environmentally, environmentally sensitive and one who is not environmentally sensitive. So the questionnaire just goes over basically a little bit about their history and um, sort of how they react to uh, the environment. Uh, in my research in, in Scotland, I had to categorize people as insensitive and non-sensitive. So um, that's that questionnaire. I have another questionnaire which has to do with more like um, the, the paranormal or ghost hunting side of things. And it's kind of a mixture of that and um, how, what they witnessed when they went through an, uh, an environment. So there's commonly reported haunt-type experiences, um, sense of presence, uh, abnormal um, nausea, feelings like that, unusual lights. So basically what it is, they just check off what experience they have, and then I correlate. I put that all in my nice little Excel, and I can see um, in a location what experiences were people having, how many were they having, uh, a little bit about their demographics. So you get a nice composite uh, and a nice snapshot of an individual witness's experience. Okay. One of the issues we have, and perhaps you could respond to this, Brandon, uh, we, the issues we have with the idea of you know, ghosts being dead people's spirits, okay, is, at least as I understand the physics, that that would not be possible under our laws of physics, you know, to have a, a disembodied, fully functional mind, memory, imagination, etc., um, or even the, the whole residue thing has always bothered me. Um, what do you say to that? I mean, because you do admit the possibility of, of spirits, I, I presume, in the classical sense. Yeah, uh, it, it's hard to... I, I do. I, I think that, um, you know, to say that they don't exist is, is sort of a step that I can't really back up. Hmm. But, um, you know... To me, consciousness is really where I think paranormal investigators and paranormal research really needs to go next. Sort of figuring out a little bit more about our self-awareness, what makes us who we are, and what happens to that after we die. So, you know, typical academia in the last hundred years would say that we're robots and once we die, once our circuitry stops, then we cease to exist. Nothing happens. 
Um, other people would look at it like consciousness does exist after we pass on. But what happens with this consciousness? Is it sort of just encapsulated into the environment? Is this consciousness go to someone else? Is it reincarnation? Or can consciousness sort of hang around a little bit and then people can sort of resonate with it and sort of communicate with it in a certain way? Um, I don't know the answers to that. Uh, I think consciousness, uh, you know, Michael Persinger is basically, in some of his research, says that there's enough energy in, in, in the environment to sort of um, hang on to all the thoughts and personalities of everyone who's ever lived from, you know, Abraham Lincoln to George Washington to uh, modern day people. And that we, if that's true, then we can sort of connect to that at time. And maybe that's where some of these experiences are coming from. You know, I, 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 it's hard in this field to, to give a direct answer on anything, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I will say that consciousness uh, is really where things are going. And I think if, if we get a better idea of consciousness, then that opens the door to all these paranormal experiences. So if consciousness isn't based in our brains and it could be external, that opens the door to telepathy. That opens the door to um, um apparitional experiences, remote viewing, um, all these things. And I, I think that's really where a lot of people should be reading about and learning about. Yeah, consciousness and non-locality. We certainly agree yes. that's, that's where it's going. Um, I, perhaps uh, we could use a, a very apt term that uh, was proposed by our dear friend uh, Mark D'Antonio, uh, who was also a sometime co-host on the show, uh, Undiscovered Science. Yeah, we, we, we're probably dealing with many, many things here that are undiscovered science, okay, uh, that may take science to new steps. So uh, one of the issues that, that does come up in this discussion, Brandon, too, is the idea of time, okay? If you're going to have reincarnation, or many, many of the things you mentioned, you know, the, the existence of people who once existed, uh, Abraham Lincoln, etc., as Persinger says, well, uh, you have to have time as a, an, object, an, an uh, objective, functioning, linear phenomenon, okay? Now, Einstein, unfortunately, has uh, kind of knocked that off the ship because he, in 1952, as you know, he wrote uh, his book Relativity, which essentially says that time is simultaneous and we only experience it as past or future. What does that do to the notion that any of us have a paranormal phenomena, phenomena particularly uh, the notion of dead people or any sort of notion of past and future as anything other than a, than a uh, subjective experience. I mean, what, what does the theory of relativity do to all this? Uh, gosh, I don't really know. I mean, what... Well, good. Yeah, it, that's it, a good, honest answer because we don't need... <laughs> <laughs> you know... It, it's like this idea of universal consciousness, which is that sort of we're all we're all connected, we're all one big thing, right? Yeah. Um, so y- you know the, the people who died a hundred years ago are part of this universal consciousness. People who are living now are part of this universal consciousness. We're all connected. There is no I. Um, there is only us, right? Um, so as far as time goes, there really is a, a differentiation between that because we're all existing, all of us at the same time at this moment. Now, um, I'm, not a, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a philosopher as far as the time stuff goes, but if we're all one, if we're all connected and we're, we, and we're connected with everyone in the past, um, I, I don't know what that says about the Einstein and the, the linear time uh, that you were talking about. But, uh, uh, you know, as far as reincarnation goes, you could, 
you could essentially keep living on and living on and living on and living on in that manner. If that's, uh, you know, reincarnation is is probably one of the oldest viewpoints of what happens after people die. Um, so it's been, I mean, it's probably one of the most popular beliefs um, in other countries. Mm. Well, uh, my degree is in philosophy, so don't worry. Oh, okay. Okay, so we're all set. All right. Uh, ben, uh, do you have any final questions here? Because... Uh, well, um, you already, discussion today. let's see. Um, well, you, you already brought up the time aspect, yep. which I, I, I thought about. I've, I've been thinking a lot recently because I've been, I've been reading, reading the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman for the last forever because it's a gigantic book. Um, and there was an, a really interesting, like, oddly poignant quote about, um, you know, how people viewed religion, especially back in the day. Because the whole, the whole plot of the book is that, you know, the, God, the gods of, of different peoples are still around hanging around in America because America is a very strange place it was settled by a, a million different cultures and a million different points in time and each and each and every single one of them brought their beliefs along with them so I mean not only Native Americans that were here but you know the Europeans even evidence of like ancient cultures like Egyptians Phoenicians and all that and and Vikings and stuff you know hung around over here so there's a very interesting quote because it they it has like all these different stories of different cultures interacting with America, um, and it's you know sort of folk culture. And there was a very uh, one of my favorite parts of it essentially was you know that these that these people essentially you know from different cultures and various ages they experienced something you know the gods and and you know fairies and all these mythological creatures were very very real to them. That, like, they, you know, the trolls that hung around under the bridges and all these old, like, stories and mythology, you know, s something happened. And the idea that we bring something to the experience and that our perspective plays a huge, a huge part in how we experience not only phenomena, but how we experience life. It's, it's really, it's really poignant to think that, you know, our ancestors clearly experienced something. You know whether they were hanging around with like Zeus or Odin or something. You know there was so, there was something there that they felt a connection to. And you know the way that the paranormal is viewed today sometimes can be treated like a religion in 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 more ways than one. You know like you know you go see your local psychic. You know get your reading for the day. You go through you know your daily zodiac calendar and like figure out what your fortunes are. You know things really haven't changed very much in humanity. And we've been around for not very long in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, not much changes except, you know, how we perceive and how we experience it. Oh, yeah, we are coming down to our... Yeah, to okay. our Brandon, uh, give, us your, <laughs> give us your website one more time. And thank you for uh, a terrific discussion. Uh, it's hauntedtheories.com, hauntedtheories.com. You can find me on Facebook, at Haunted Theories, and then Twitter is at Haunted Theories as well. Uh, all, everything you need to know about me, where I'm going to be, about the book, I do a blog on there as well. You can follow. Um, that's a good place to get a hold of me through social media as well if you have any questions or anything like that. Outstanding. Thanks again. All right, thank you. Okay, folks, let's get to our announcements. Uh, ben, if you want to take that away. Alrighty, so... On the uh, MUFON conference, or the MUFON symposium, that's uh, the 2018 MUFON symposium, um, takes place next weekend. Uh, that's July 27th and 29th at the Crown Plaza, uh, Philadelphia, in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, my dad and I aren't going to be speaking there, but, you know, this is a great event, and it's rarely on the East Coast, so you can check it out at uh, the MUFONsymposium.com. Uh, on Saturday... 
Uh, oh, our, please. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I step on your line? No. Oh. <laughs> Saturday, August 4th, uh, Ben and I will be back at the Danbury Public Library in Connecticut to present a program on Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, based on, on our 2017 book of the same subtitle. The event begins at noon. It's free, but registration is required, so sign up at danburylibrary.org. Uh, on Labor Day weekend, September 1st and 2nd, we'll be back at the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire. Along with us, speakers will include uh, Richard Dolan, Kathleen Marden, Peter Robbins, Mark D'Antonio, filmmaker Jennifer Stein, and uh, the ubiquitous Shane Searway, among others. Our subject on Saturday will be, quote, aliens and exorcism, why do, quote, possessed people, unquote, re- report UFO experiences. On Sunday, we'll do our third annual on-location broadcast of Behind the Paranormal from Exeter Town Hall with a panel of the speakers and a live audience. The event is a great annual fundraiser for Kiwanis Club Children's Charities in southern New Hampshire. So last year it raised over $9,000. So find out more at ExeterUFO.org. And then on Columbus Day weekend, October 5th and 6th, we'll once again be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, our tentative topic, Aliens with or without UFOs. All three of our panelists uh, from our 10th anniversary show on July 10th, or, I'm sorry, June 10th, uh, will be speaking at, uh, there as well, along with a number of great presenters. And uh, you can find out more about that at NewEnglandUFO.com. But we are coming down to the wire here, so let us get to the quote. Okay, uh, we have a quote that uh, Laurie has left us again from Beyond the Airwaves. This is from uh, A.A. Milne, the author of The House at Pooh Corner. You just, sa- you just stay in this one corner of the forest waiting for others to come to you. Why don't you go to them sometimes? Pretty cool. Mm. All right, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And we had Laurie agree with us, but she cannot do, the, do this via speakerphone and drive. So I will say thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.